Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory, or even the quality of an older person's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. Today's episode features a very special guest, and I'll be speaking with geriatrician Sharon Inouye, who is professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, where she directs the Aging Brain Center at Hebrew Senior Life. Dr. Inoue is one of the nation's foremost experts on delirium, which is that state of worse-than-usual mental function that often affects older adults during hospitalizations. Today, we know that delirium is a very important problem to prevent and detect, and that is almost entirely due to the research that Dr. Inoue started early in her career. Dr. Inoue has also helped develop a number of practical approaches to help us prevent and detect delirium, some of which involve family caregivers. Last but not least, Dr. Inoue has also studied cognitive aging and cognitive decline, and she was a member of the expert committee that worked on the Institute of Medicine's report on cognitive aging, which was published in April of 2015. So I'm just so delighted that she was able to join us on the show today to talk about the aging brain and how we can better take care of it. Sharon, welcome to the show. Thank you, Leslie. I'm delighted to be here and to join your show today. So within the field of medicine, you are very well known for delirium. Today, there are lots of people doing research on delirium, but you were one of the first people to to start off taking it very seriously. And before we go more into the work you've done, I was just kind of curious. I find that delirium is such an important problem for us in geriatrics, but that often the public has hardly heard of it. So how do you explain what is delirium to the general public and to families? So that's a really important point, Leslie. It's important for older adults and their loved ones to understand what delirium is because it's often the family who are the ones who who pick up the early signs. So delirium is, it's a sudden change in mental functioning or sudden onset of confusion. It tends to develop over hours to days. And when it begins, people can look like they're just confused or their mind is clouded. They have difficulty paying attention, difficulty focusing their thoughts. Um, Some of the symptoms can be quite distressing. Um, And these can include things like difficulty understanding what's happening around them seeing things or hearing things that don't seem to to really be there, Um, saying things that don't really make sense, such as uh, incoherent speech. Right. So these are some of the signs and symptoms of a delirium. Right. Well, um, well, I remember actually my, uh, my very first personal experience with delirium, also my first professional one, was as um, a medical student. I was a third-year medical student, and my mother called me 
and said, your father has gone crazy and is speaking nonsense. And, um, and he had actually developed a serious pneumonia and um, was, uh, was delirious. And I had vaguely, vaguely heard of it, but um, we have a page actually on Better Health While Aging about hospital delirium. And there are so many people who write in the comments that, uh, that they had never heard of this. So why is it still so little known to um, the public? So I, what you said is very, very important, Leslie, that um, it often occurs or is triggered by an underlying very um, severe illness or serious illness or a, med- a new medication or something acute happening like surgery. So there, it's very commonly um, a response to a, a very severe stress. And so um, it can be the warning sign of you know, something serious developing or happening. And so we do try to make sure that people are aware of that. So you asked, why is it um, unrecognized? And it's a really good question. And I think that it's not just one simple answer. I think that people haven't heard about delirium, even in, you know, nursing school and medical school. We don't it's not universal that our healthcare providers get trained about what delirium is, how to recognize it. And then too, I think that um, when people develop confusion, it's not always a symptom that, you know, even in the community um, that patients or family members will jump on necessarily, you know, that very often people will attribute it to something else like, oh, it's uh, just a part of normal aging. It's just forgetfulness. It's just depression. Um, you know, it's just an early sign of memory impairment. So a lot of times people kind of attribute it to something else. And so that is also a problem. And finally, I don't think that people in general, including healthcare professionals sometimes, don't realize how serious um, it can be. And so I think working together, the three things cause it to be very poorly recognized. It's also difficult to measure. There's no standardized way that everybody does, you know, to recognize delirium. Whereas, you know, if we're testing vision, we all know we use the vision card or the vision sign, you know, it's very standard. There's no, really no such standard way in delirium. So that also makes it uh, a bit difficult. Right. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, you said something that part- particularly uh, caught my attention there, which was that, you know, people think it's just normal aging. And it seems to me that so many of the things we focus on on geriatrics and take quite seriously are things that used to be waved off as, you know, part of aging, you know, like, like falls, right. Or, or, or declining. So my understanding is that that used to be, you know, somewhat the approach to, to delirium too. So tell us a little bit more about how you became interested in it and, and started down this path of uh, learning more about it and helping us understand it better. Right. Well, when I first started in, um, being interested in delirium. It was back then in 1984, it wasn't even called delirium. It was called acute confusional state. 
and um, there really weren't many people at all um, looking at the problem. And the reason I got interested was in my very first rotation as a medicine attending. So the very first time I had just finished my training and was now, you know, qualified to be an independent physician supervising a team um, on a medical ward. And this happened to be at the West Haven VA hospital in Connecticut. And I was the internal medicine attending on the general medicine service. And so it was my very first service where, you know, the buck stopped with me. And so I took, you know, I felt so responsible for all of my patients at that time. And in my 40 or so patients that I admitted that month, I remember so distinctly about six older patients who became very confused while they were in the hospital. Mm. And they hadn't been confused at all before, and they all became severely and acutely confused during the hospitalization, and they all ended up not doing well. I think one one of them died, two of them went to the intensive care unit, and three of them ended up going to nursing homes. And so I was really devastated by that. And so I began asking my colleagues, you know, what is this about older people becoming confused in the hospital? Why was it happening? And and I was repeatedly told not to worry about it, that that's just something that's seen, it's very common, and you know, that I, you know, I shouldn't worry myself about it, but I couldn't stop thinking and worrying about it. And so I reviewed all the charts and really I came to believe that there were maybe aspects of the medications we used or the treatment we gave that maybe could have been done differently. Mm. And so that that's really what started me on the path to being interested in this area of delirium. Mm. Well, it's so wonderful that you just paid attention to it and pushed back against that idea that, oh, it's just what happens to older people, because just because something is common doesn't mean that we couldn't understand it better and, and potentially take better care of it. And you really um, I think that early work of yours really spearheaded this for the field of geriatrics, and we're now, you know, sharing that with our colleagues. So people often confuse delirium, and when I say people, I would say it's true for the public and, and also probably for health providers, but they often confuse it with a dementia such as Alzheimer's disease, and um, you've probably heard these stories too, but I've had people tell me my grandmother developed sudden onset of dementia while she was in the hospital or sometimes intensive care unit dementia. So how do you explain to the public how these two conditions are different, but still in some ways actually kind of related? It's, it's really important. So dementia or Alzheimer's disease is a chronic progressive condition. So it tends to come on gradually over months to years. And it, that's in you know, distinction from a delirium that, again, tends to come on acutely and suddenly. Um, and it does, t delirium also tends to fluctuate during the course of the day, whereas a, 
in the confusion in dementia does not tend to fluctuate like that. And so that's really how you can distinguish them. Um, but they are related, as you say, because dementia actually is the leading risk factor for developing a delirium. So what I mean by that is if someone has an underlying dementia or some degree of cognitive or memory impairment, then they're much more at risk for developing a delirium if they should be hospitalized or if they should undergo major surgery. And so what does that mean for us clinically? That really means if someone is has a dementia or a cognitive impairment and they're admitted to the hospital, we have to really pay special attention to preserving brain functioning and brain health during that hospitalization by being very careful about the types of medications we give, about making sure that the person gets adequate sleep and that um, their family members are around to provide orientation. It's very important that we stay attuned to providing you know, the best possible care for brain health. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, the other important thing is that delirium can also increase the risk in someone who doesn't have a dementia. Delirium can increase the risk of a, developing a subsequent dementia. And so I think both of those show that it's very interrelated, these two conditions. And so we have to be aware of how to distinguish them, but also how they interrelate with each other. Right. Because it really sounds like people developing delirium is partly about the underlying vulnerability of um, of their brain and that it's it, it sounds like it's more likely to emerge if your brain is already vulnerable and has some underlying damage due to Alzheimer's disease or another condition. And that maybe also delirium, you know, creates a little bit of additional damage or accelerates it so that, you know, you might be more likely to... Um, have cognitive decline or have it speed up afterwards. Is that about right? That's absolutely right, Leslie. Totally right. Yeah. So uh, I find that there are a fair number of people who say, oh, my, my mom was fine. And then, you know, developed dementia in the hospital and has had dementia ever since. How do you interpret that? I mean, can people suddenly develop Alzheimer's that quickly? So typically, um, typically not, <laughs> you know, right. Um, never say never, but that's highly unusual. And what's much more likely is that person that's being described to you probably, um, had some underlying cognitive impairment or vulnerability that wasn't recognized prior to the hospitalization. And then during the hospitalization developed a delirium, which was very, dramatic and not missed. And then that delirium may have unmasked or accelerated that underlying dementia that then, you know, manifested itself and became a chronic condition. That's much, that's a much more likely scenario. We have shown that in um, many of my studies as being the typical type of scenario that's seen. And so I think that's much more likely 
um, what was happening in that description, which I agree with you. You hear that all the time. Mm-hmm. I heard that all the time in my practice. And so um, that's part of the type of feedback that got me very interested in looking at this condition and its long-term outcomes. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I have, you know, much less experience than than you do, but that's also, uh, I would say, consistent with my experience. And I think people don't realize often that quite a lot of people have cognitive impairment and, and are not diagnosed. It's, uh, it's either not uh, brought up by the family who might sort of be thinking, oh, it's just kind of normal as you get older again, yes. um, or that it hasn't been... Um, you know, recognized by the the healthcare provider. And then I also do have families tell me, well, we told the doctor we were worried about, was mom's memory okay? And that the doctor kind of waved it off and said, you know, oh, well, you know, she's just getting older. So um, so I do think that's an important point that, uh, that it still unfortunately remains quite common for people to not get, have their cognitive impairment recognized and diagnosed, which means that then when they're hospitalized, it's harder to anticipate and and take steps to prevent the the delirium. Well, you've uh, you've actually developed a special program to to help address these these issues. But before you tell us about it, I want to ask you a question that I think probably many people will be wondering right now, which is, okay, so once somebody has delirium, how do you treat it, and does it get better? Sure. So once somebody has a delirium, it's First of all, it's very, very important if they're not in the hospital that they get to a hospital for evaluation. Um, if they are in the hospital, it's very important to make sure the medical staff are aware that there has been this change um, in mental status because often um, someone an older person can just appear more sleepy than usual, or they can just be not themselves, and the family can recognize that it's a dramatic change, but the it's not always so apparent to the to the hospital staff. So it's very critical to make sure that families need to make sure the hospital staff are aware that there's been this change. Right. Yeah, so once that change is recognized, then um, a medical evaluation typically ensues where the healthcare professionals will look at the medications, will look at laboratory, um, you know, test arrangements that can lead to it, will search for infections, will try to find a cause of the delirium. So that's critically important to do because as we already said before, Leslie, and as you referred with your father um, who had developed a pneumonia, very often there's an underlying condition that needs to be treated. Mm -hmm. And without recognizing and treating the underlying condition, or sometimes it's multiple factors, um, you will not resolve the delirium. Mm -hmm. So the mainstay is to find the causes and treat them. The second, you know, major aspect is to keep the person safe and prevent injury because when someone has delirium um, and they're very confused, they're very at risk for falling, for um, 
you know, choking when they're eating, if they're very sleepy and lethargic, meaning they're difficult to keep them awake, then they may be at risk for developing pressure ulcers or um, problems with bladder or bowel incontinence. Um, they can develop, you know, blood clots in the legs because of not moving enough. They may develop dehydration because of not drinking enough. So we really have to be attuned to keeping them safe, hydrated, you know, um, preventing um, choking episodes and so forth. So just this level of awareness. Yeah. Uh-huh. Now, since you're mentioning safety, I know an issue that comes up often is that the person is is either thrashing around or quite agitated. I mean, as you pointed out, people sometimes get very quiet and spaced out when they're delirious. And that is actually still delirium and still, you know, needs treatment. But the ones that everybody notices, you know, are the people who are very restless and, and, and agitated. And so they might be thrashing around and they might also get up when they're too weak. And so there's often concern about falls and pulling out the IV. And there used to be a sort of a reflex to try to, to tie those people. What do you, what do you recommend for somebody who's very agitated in that way to help keep them safe. Yes, yes. So management of agitation in the hospital is, of course, quite a challenge, and particularly if the person is very confused. Um, I think it depends on, of course, the degree of agitation. And um, more typically, it's a milder form. Of course, you can have the more severe forms that we'll talk about in a moment. But if it's a milder form of agitation, very often what what we find when people are delirious is that they're very frightened because they don't understand what's happening to them. They don't understand what they're being told. Um, And so it's a very, very frightening experience. You know, as you can imagine, if you were acutely confused and didn't know where you were and you know, recognizing the people around you, I'm sure you can imagine that would be a very frightening experience. And so, yeah, so the ways um, we really encourage that the mainstay be to try to calm the person without medications, if at all possible. Why do we recommend that? Because all of the medications that are used to sedate people There's several different classes of medications that are used to sedate or calm people pharmacologically. So those are things like antipsychotic meds and um, and benzodiazepines, which are a a type of sedative medications. But both of those classes of medications actually can prolong the delirium and actually have been associated with worse clinical outcomes from delirium in multiple studies now. Mm-hmm. And so they're not recommended for, for delirious patients, if possible, to be avoided. Right. And then they also sometimes give things that are sort of similar to Benadryl. I remember they used to do that when I was uh, a resident, but that is what uh, what we would call an anticholinergic. We've talked about those sometimes on the podcast and site. I'll put a, a, a link, but those also tend to make the confusion worse, right? Exactly. 
anticholinergic medications also definitely make confusion worse. Mm -hmm. So any sedative drug is going to make the delirium worse. So what we like to try to do is do non-pharmacologic relaxation, which can include the use of calming music, massage, having a family member there, you know, just doing gentle reorientation. Sometimes just having a loved one there can make all the difference. You Mm -hmm. can in a very calm way, explain things, reassure um, their loved one. It can make all, all the difference. And we have a lot of information about this um, on our website, which, you know, I'll, I'll, um, the hospital elder life program, which I'll tell you about in a moment. But in the very, in the very severe cases, um, uh, you know, as you raised, where someone is clearly going to pull out all their lines or, you know, extubate themselves or, or interrupt um, essential medical treatments, or they're going to, you know, be aggressive to staff or other patients. Then in those cases, you you pretty much have to resort to using one of the sedative drugs because you don't have a choice. But again, I would encourage um, that, you know, the use of the non-pharmacologic approaches should come first and family, again, can really help in that situation. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's, uh, yeah, it's really supposed to be a last resort. And, um, but, um, and I think it's also a, a choosing wisely recommendation. That was that program a few years ago where each medical society had to, to make a recommendation that was related to some form of not quite right care that people often got. And I think that was one of the recommendations for the American, from the American Geriatric Society was to, to not restrain people as a first choice when they were delirious and agitated. And they said that because it it was actually quite common. And it still seems to be fairly common for the hospitals, unless they've been um, really trained um, to have a better approach to delirium. It's still quite common for them to either restrain people or start with the sedatives. Yes, yes. So so families should probably, um, you know, not just be present, but also be ready to ask questions, I guess. Exactly. And the other thing that happens a lot in most hospitals, in addition to physical restraints or instead of them, are the bed and chair alarms. Mm. And mm-hmm. those are, as you know, very widely used in hospitals. I feel they are overused and they really discourage mobility. And it has been shown that when people are immobilized in the hospital, they are at much higher risk for delirium. And so I feel that, you know, the bed and chair alarms, um, you know, really have done a disservice to many, many patients. So again, I think I would encourage family members to really question their use. Are these really needed? You know, I'm, the family's going to be here, you know, could we not have that bed and or chair along? Um, right. So I just I would just encourage that. And also what you were saying about, you know, mobilizing. I think people don't necessarily realize that. They think, you know, if a person is sick, they should stay in bed, that it's safer. But actually it's good to be supported in getting out of bed and have some 
some movements. I guess the trick is figuring out a way to do it, you know, safely because people are often worried about falls. Yes, exactly. And so once the cause of the delirium has been treated, do people get better and what helps them get better? Yes. So most people do get better from delirium once the cause is recognized or once they're, say, if it's due to a surgery, once they're, you know, they get adequately, adequate post-operative care. Um, so I would say the vast majority, probably over 70% of people will recover fully after a delirium. There is a subgroup though, and that is probably the people with the vulnerable brains, as you mm -hmm. talked about, Leslie, that will go on to have permanent cognitive deficits um, after a delirium. It's hard to know who exactly that will be. Um, I think it has to do with both the severity of the delirium, the duration of the delirium, and then how vulnerable that person was at baseline that will determine it. And that's something that we're looking at now. And so there are some who may, it may either take them a very long time to recover from the delirium, like six to 12 months. Um, and there may be even some people that develop permanent um, sequelae after. Yeah. And now I, I remember being surprised, you know, as a, as a geriatrics fellow, and even in, you know, my early years in, in geriatrics that people got better, but that it often took uh, weeks to months. And I think I hadn't quite realized that when I was first taught about delirium. And of course, you know, the, the older or more vulnerable the person, the longer it seemed to, to take. So has that been your experience also? Yes, exactly. It does. In, in many vulnerable people, it takes a long time to recover. Yeah. I, I remember one patient in particular who, who slowly got better over a whole year. <laughs> wow. But then we're, but then recovered fully? Uh, almost fully. But, you know, he uh, he was 92 and he had just had one of those terrible times where he spent three to four months shuttling between the hospital and the rehabilitation facility, mm -hmm. you know, and they couldn't quite get the medical issues under control. And uh, and finally, his his wife took him out against medical advice. And you know, just said he's not getting better. I'm going to take him home. Uh, she was in her late 80s, and they didn't have children too. I think she recruited, you know, sort of friends from the community to help her. And yes, I remember the first time he came in, and he was still so confused, and he had really seemed mostly okay before. And I thought, oh, that was just, you know, too much time delirious. And he just slowly, every other month, he would come in, and he'd be a little better. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I really, so yes, that made a very strong impression on me. But, um, and I think speaks to the fact that sometimes getting out of that medical environment and back to a loving home environment is really powerful medicine. I agree with that. And just, yeah, being in your familiar environment and not continually bombarded with medical care and and disorienting bells and lights and everything going off, it does make a huge difference. Yeah. Now, he did have this very devoted wife who was able to spend a lot of time with him. And I think that's the challenge that some families uh, encounter is 
who is able to be there with this person recovering from delirium for weeks, you know, that can be a challenge. So now I would love for you, um, so you have interest in quality and making things, you know, uh, systems that make things, things better. And um, so you actually started, you know, a program to address this issue of delirium in the hospital. And I would love for you to tell us about it. So, yeah, so I developed a program called the Hospital Elder Life Program, or HELP, as we lovingly call it. And um, I really developed it because I wanted to improve hospital care for elders. As you heard from my first experience, I really thought that some of the ways we cared for older people in the hospital were leading to things like delirium and functional decline. Mm-hmm. So with the program, we provide trained staff and volunteers, and we, tr- we provide all the materials and videotapes in order to train the volunteers. Um, and we, we, the program really is designed to provide daily care to meet the needs of hospitalized elders. And we focus on six risk factors for delirium. And these risk factors are cognitive impairment that we've already talked about, immobility, sensory impairment, meaning visual and hearing impairment, dehydration, malnutrition, and sleep deprivation. And so we work every day to try to prevent those six things or to try to maximize, optimize care to address those six things. Mm-hmm. And so it's the volunteers who sort of go in and help older people who seem at risk for those things, or are they sort of assisting the, the, the nurses and doctors with that? Yep. So the volunteers are trained to do specific activities. The program involves nurses and physicians, um, and the, they oversee the volunteers. Um, but the volunteers do do activities with the patients to try to impact on these. So I can give you a couple of examples. Yeah, that'd so, be great. Yeah. So for cognitive decline, for instance, the volunteers will go into the room and we advise that there be a whiteboard in each room or chalkboard, some kind of a board where the volunteers can write up the, the day and the date the patient schedule for each day, like, um, you know, what time is breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Are they going for physical therapy? Are they going for a test? You know, just give them their schedule for that day and review it with them. And so they provide that orientation. They also write up on the board the name of their physician, the name of their nurse, and the name of the volunteer that shift. And then they go over it with them. This is just called an orientation protocol. And so they do that three times a day with the patient. The other thing they do is something called therapeutic activities. So this is basically activities that are fun and enjoyable that help to keep them cognitively stimulated and oriented. They try to tailor it to the person's interests. So they can do things like crossword puzzles or reviewing the front page of the newspaper or playing games like word games or mm-hmm. reminiscence activities. You know, they can show pictures of movie stars. Have you ever seen a movie with <laughs> this right. person in it? You know, and so 
those are some of the examples. And this program is for people who don't yet have delirium. It's really meant Correct. to prevent delirium. Correct. Correct. Mm-hmm. Ideally, anyone over the age of 70 um, ideally would get enrolled into the program, but they need to have at least one risk factor, one of those risk factors present, mm-hmm. the six that I said, um, for the program really to be effective. And every once in a while, you get a 90-year-old who has no risk factors, and they tend to actually do pretty well during hospitalization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Believe those are the ones who just are quite robust on the inside, um, some of them. And um, so you're a researcher, so I'm sure you've studied yes. the program and made sure it works. And what kind of results have you found when you've studied? Yes, well, we've actually found now in over 200 health programs around the world that it does reduce delirium by about 40 to 60 percent. Oh, my God. Um, that is amazing. Yeah, one hospital, or UPMC Shadyside, actually has demonstrated a 90% reduction in delirium Wow! Um, at their hospital consistently that's been maintained over many, many, many years. So it's very dramatic, um, but, but this program has to operate. You know, you really have to have the volunteers there for three shifts a day doing the cognitive um, stimulation, doing the mobility, providing vision and hearing impairment um, right. ad- adaptations and so forth, and doing the massage for sleep. So if you do that, then it works. Yeah. Now, I mean, that's such an impressive reduction. And, you know, and your research and others has shown that people who have delirium have longer hospital stays, have have worse outcomes, and, you know, probably cost more money. Not that the care we provide should be all about saving money, but that often helps make changes. So if this is so effective, why wouldn't more hospitals be willing to, you know, even pay people to help provide um, these services? And also, you know, what you were describing me reminded me of, of universal design, right? Yes. <laughs> when they something is designed to help people who, you know, have a higher level of need or vulnerability, and then actually everybody finds it better, right? I mean, wouldn't everybody in the hospital, like a whiteboard telling them what's going on? Right. Um, right. So yeah, I'm kind of curious why this, this isn't... Uh, you know, more widespread. Yep. So again, it's it's complex in our healthcare system. It certainly is. Yeah, I think the health model um, has had a lot of uptake in in countries where care is capitated mm. um, and where there's a single payer. Mm. And I think so. We have tremendous uptake in Canada. Um, we've had quite a bit in the UK and Australia, um, for instance. Um, and I think, again, that's because what happens in our hospitals, uh, unfortunately, is that many hospitals, they don't want to spend the money for delirium prevention. They don't want to hire additional staff because actually the bulk of the expense of that shifts onto the post-acute or long-term care setting. Oh, okay. And so, yeah, so there isn't really a motivation right now. There are cost savings for reducing length of stay, but it does require an upfront investment, right, mm-hmm. to develop the program. Yeah, and, yeah. And hospitals are very, 
what I've learned over time, um, I went to speak at a hospital um, where there were physicians and nurses very, very interested in setting up the health um, program. And they invited me to come out um, as a speaker and they set up a meeting for me with the the CEO and the hospital president and their board of directors because they really wanted me to sell the program <laughs> to this health system. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very enthusiastic nurses and physicians. And so, you know, I went through, I did my little presentation and spiel and, you know, why it would be so great for them, improving quality of care, improving outcomes, decreasing length of stay, I showed them the cost figures that the program's highly cost-effective. It would save them this much over time. And the, the hospital president said to me, so exactly how many staff could I lay off if we implemented this program? Oh. That's literally, literally what the president said to me. And so it made me realize, you know, that is truly the perspective of a healthcare administrator, you know, they wanted, they want to know the immediate savings, like, so that they could actually not have as many staff, you know, Mm. that's what they mean by saving money. And so the concept of prevention, you know, um, it's hard to make a case for it's in these hard big to systems. Make, yeah, it's hard to make a case for in the big systems. And, you know, what I had to say to him is, you know, first of all, it's going to take a couple of years to realize that degree of savings. And second of all, it's not going to be in that you can lay off staff. The savings will come because if your length of stay is reduced by 0.5 days or one day, you're going to have an extra bed that you could fill with a different patient, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Bring in more revenue that way. Right. And so you do, you know, you do have to hire the extra staff to create the program, but then ultimately it results in you being able to free up beds and generate more revenue that way, along with, improving quality of care, improving patient and family satisfaction, (laughs) decreasing these um, bad outcomes and improving quality. The other message that really works with um, hospital administration is that help really works. And now we have the publications to show it does prevent falls. It does decrease pressure ulcers. Mm. Um, And so these are things that are um, Medicare no pay conditions. Oh, I see. Um, mm-hmm. Which hospitals really care about. It does also decrease readmissions. Right. And so hospital administrators really um, are in tune with those things. And so I think that's another way you can sell mm-hmm. to the hospital administration. Yeah. Well, it sounds like, you know, from the perspective of an older adult or family, that they're would be lots of advantages to being hospitalized at a place that has one of these programs. So how many hospitals in the U.S. have a HELP program and how can people find them? Is there a list on the, the HELP website? Yeah, so um, right now we don't list them at the request of the sites because they were getting inundated with requests 
for helping other people set up sites. And so um, they asked us um, not to list them right now, but family, many, many, many of them have websites. So if family members just put into any search engine the words hospital elder life program, they will come to about a hundred websites that mm-hmm. are there mm-hmm. um, and they could see what, you know, if there are any local hospitals. The other thing is they can call their local hospital and say, do you have a health program and would you be willing to set one up and write or speak to the hospital leaders and give them our website. And we're more than happy um, at hospitalelderlifeprogram.org, all one word, to help other hospitals to coach them in setting up a program. Right, and right. so, you know, it's available free of charge. All the ma- training materials are there. All the information is there. But it does take a dedicated team, you know, to set it up. So, but we definitely encourage, and I know many programs have been spearheaded by uh, family members or by our volunteers or by the nursing staff at hospitals. So it is a change that can happen because of someone, you know, it's typically one person at a hospital who creates the movement there. Mm, That's so important for for people to know. So, yeah, so we've talked about delirium and how important it is for brain health and and how being hospitalized in a facility that's paying attention to delirium prevention can can really make a big difference for protecting people's brains, whether or not they already have a dementia diagnosis. And as I'm sure you know, people are just so interested in brain health and how to protect their brains, but I feel like often preventing delirium is not on their radar, which has been kind of interesting to me. But uh, you were part of the, the, the group that studied the best ways to maintain one's brain as one gets older. And what are the things that you think are most important to preserve brain health as one gets older? So the Institute of Medicine organized an expert panel of people who spend their lives working on, on brain health and maintaining brain health. And it was really an incredible group to be a part of. And what we did together was we reviewed the world's literature on what are the most important um, evidence-based strategies to try to prevent future cognitive decline and to help people preserve um, healthy brains. And what was demonstrated in that report was that the one thing that's most effective and most proven is actually physical exercise. And the recommendation was, you know, for any type of aerobic exercise at a minimum of three times a week for about 30 minutes, Um, And that can be walking, it can be swimming, it can be treadmill, it can be bicycling. Um, But that's the one thing that's been proven to forestall both cognitive decline and dementia. And that's been proven in animal models and in humans. And it's absolutely irrefutable. And so um, that is... uh, 
the strongest recommendation that came out of that report. I think we don't understand completely why or how it works. Um, it does work. There's a lot of evidence that there are changes in neurotransmitters, changes in you know, brain functioning at a molecular level. Um, of course, there's also improvements in circulation. So it's not clear. There's also changes in um, you know, hormones. There's changes in weight, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so a, a lot of those things are beneficial. The second recommendation was to reduce that cardiovascular risk factors. So those are things like hypertension, diabetes, and smoking. If you would attend to those three, it's also very good for brain health. The third big recommendation from the report was to be aware of delirium. And if you're going to be hospitalized, to be very aware of that risk, to bring in your medication list for the doctors, to let them know if you've ever had delirium before, for families to be aware of early changes. The other thing was to minimize the use of medications that could lead to delirium or psychoactive medications. And so to try to, you know, minimize their usage, both in the community as well as in the hospital. So basically no daily sleep medications, if that can be avoided. Right. Yeah. And then the two more recommendations of that report were to stay socially involved lifelong learning is wonderful and to get enough sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I thought that report was, uh, was really wonderful, but it did strike me that in writing online for the public, I see lots of other things and, and that I've, I feel like it's quite common to sort of bring up physical activity for brain health and cardiovascular risk factors and sleep and intellectual activities, but that it's relatively rare that, you know, one medications are brought up and that two delirium is brought up and it's kind of a shame because um you know they're 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 really common issues so i keep hoping that these recommendations will take off more and um and now we've brought it up for our audience so at least uh, there's that what things did you and the group find were maybe overrated or less effective than people might think yeah that's very very important One of the things that we actually spent a great deal of time talking about in our group were these brain games or computer-assisted training programs. Mm. And those are very controversial, as you may know, Leslie. A lot of um, money is being invested in these games. A lot of people are playing these games daily and swear by them. But unfortunately, all of the research to date um, shows that they're only effective in teaching you how to play brain games. They don't, the activities don't generalize to real world activities very well. Mm-hmm. And so it's not clear that playing those brain games, um, computer games, um, really helps to um, improve. Uh, or prevent uh, cognitive decline or dementia. And so right now, um, and the other risk is that if people spend so much time, you know, playing these games, they may not have time to actually do the stuff that is already known to be effective, like go out and exercise. Right. So, <laughs> Or be social. So, 
Exactly. Yeah. Or, or be social and interact. So in, in short, as, as you know from the report, we came out with a recommendation. Our recommendation was that brain games are not recommended at this time. Mm-hmm. The other thing was um, that um, if you watch any late night TV, you see there are a lot of herbal remedies and different kinds of um, supplements supplements that are uh, advertised for longevity and for brain health. And this was another area that we spent a lot of time in the committee discussing. And the bottom line is that none of them are really documented to be effective. And some of them have already been shown to have dangerous side effects or dangerous interactions with important medications like Coumadin mm-hmm. or, or other important medications that a lot of people are on. And so, again, there was not a recommendation in favor of any of these herbal remedies or supplements. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think um, I think in the full report, you also address nutrition. And in a lot of ways, just eating a lot more vegetables is is more likely, I think, to be effective than any particular single supplements. People are often looking for a single, fairly simple thing to change, and it's um, kind of uh, bigger things. That's right. Did you make a recommendation on nutrition in the report? I'm trying to remember. Yes, we we really wanted to. <laughs> we mm-hmm. wanted to um, recommend, um, you know, a healthy diet, a well-rounded diet, or Mediterranean diet. Um, the evidence didn't make it to our level of um, high level that we wanted to uh, make recommendations. I think we may have put in a line that, you know, it's strongly encouraged and it's an important area for overall health. Um, But I don't think it came out as one of our, you know, top 10 recommendations in terms of, um, of, of, the prevention of cognitive decline. Yeah. We all believe that, you know, the strategies of healthy living, of exercise, avoiding smoking, um, drinking in moderation, um, a healthy diet, um, and getting enough sleep and staying socially engaged are very, very, very critically important. Um, And so that was kind of the recommendation, as you said, it's more a global lifestyle change rather than, you know, there's no silver bullet, so to speak. You know, it's a global lifestyle change that is what's needed for healthy longevity and brain health. Right. That and carefully choosing your hospitals, if possible. That's right. Should you be hospitalized? Because even though it's necessary sometimes to be hospitalized, it's a... you know, can be a, a, a perilous place for, for older people because uh, we have not finished our work in geriatrics of right. making hospitals as safe for older adults as we hope they someday will be. Well, Sharon, thank you so much for joining me to tell us about this work that you have done. I will certainly be putting a link to the Hospital Elder Life Program and to some of the other resources you mentioned in the show notes. I know that on the HELP website, there are some resources specifically for family caregivers. Any last tips or suggestions um, that you want to share with the audience? Yeah, well, 
I really enjoyed this, Leslie, and some of the key messages that I, I wanted to get out there were um, how important family members are mm. to the recognition of delirium. And so please, please, I want to empower families to bring early changes to the attention of nurses and physicians. Just say they're not right. Something is going on. Please evaluate. And that... Um, just the knowledge um, that many factors can contribute to the development of delirium. So things like medications, infections, illnesses, so that if you do see in, in the home mental status changes developing, that you are aware it could be the earliest sign of a serious condition developing. Mm -hmm. So those were the two messages that I wanted to leave your audience with. Great. Well, very important. Thank you for reiterating them. Sharon, thank you so very much. Thank you. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes. And I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.